Good evening, folks. How are you tonight? It is good to see you. I want you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. We're going to look at the first four verses, and then we're going to explore some in Scripture tonight. Is it okay if we just explore some Scripture tonight? Uh, Psalm chapter 3 is an interesting passage because it is a cry from King David for help from the Lord. Now, this is a man who's been blessed from his childhood. God has hand-selected him to be the leader of the nation of Israel. And God has raised him up and has elevated him into the place where he is serving as king. And in Psalm chapter 3, we find that David is crying out to the Lord to save him because of mortal danger that is happening to him. So in verse 1, it says, O Lord... I have so many enemies, so many are against me, so many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory and the one who holds my head high. If you've got NIV or maybe even the King James, it literally translates, you are the one who, the lifter of my head there. Verse four says, and I cried out to the Lord, And he answered me from his holy mountain. I want to talk to you for the next few moments about grace that is greater. Grace that is greater. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to open up your word. And I pray that as we open your word, we'd open our hearts to receive your word so that you may accomplish your perfect will in our lives. I pray you anoint the words you've given me to say as they go forth. Anoint our ears to hear them and our hearts to receive them. And may your name be glorified, Lord, in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Have you, in a world of business, have you ever heard the term in business that the customer's always right? And, and now I worked in business for six years, and can I just tell you the customer's not always right? But the, the slogan is there to say, make it right for the customer so that they'll come back. Because in business world, it costs less to retain a customer than it does to get a new customer. So it's to do anything you can to hold on to the customers that you have. Now, in business world, you literally will monitor things in order to make sure that you're not losing customers. And businesses will go to such extremes to make sure that they don't make a colossal mistake and lose a lot of customers. I, I realized this, and I worked in business, but I didn't realize that it came down to such a small, minute level until about maybe 12 years ago. So uh, when we lived here, um, uh, the first time we lived here, we were serving on staff, my kids were young then, and so every Saturday night was pizza night. How many of you got a night, where, whether it's pizza night or taco night or something like that? Every Saturday night, it was pizza night, and every Saturday night, we ordered pizza from Domino's. It was the one that my kids liked. Well, we did this for two or three years straight. I mean, every Saturday night. And then we were out of town for several weeks. We, had, we were on vacation. Then we had a, a meeting out of town. Uh, actually, two weekends in a row, we had meetings out of town in this. So um, on those Saturday nights, we weren't home during that. I get, now, we ordered so much, I literally had Domino's plugged, like, you know, you don't just look it up online. It was like, called Domino's. And, you know, it was, it was on my phone. So I was surprised that during the week, on a Monday or Tuesday, following us getting back, my phone rings and it says Domino's. And so I answer, and, and, and well, I, I looked at Laura. I said, did you order pizza? She said, no. So I answered the phone, and they said, Mr. Walters? And I said, yeah. It was the manager of the store. He said, 
I've noticed that you've ordered pizza on Saturday night every Saturday night for two or three years back. And I said, yeah. He said, you haven't ordered in three weeks. I said, well, no. And he said, is everything okay? Is your family okay? I was like, well, this is going a little far at this point, you know. He said, have we done anything to offend you? Or, you know, we want to make sure we didn't make such a big mistake that we didn't lose you as a customer. I said, no, no man, we've been out of town. I said, well, we'll see you Saturday night, you know. But he was literally afraid that they had made such a mistake that we're gonna lose a customer in this. In, in thinking about this passage, when we read it, we think, now David was a man of war. David was one who conquered territories for the Lord, expanded Israel's boundaries for the Lord. And because he was a man of war, there was many enemies, especially with the Philistines. But this passage is not about the Philistines or some other foreign country coming against him. If your Bible has a note on the chapter, it will say it's a psalm from when David was fleeing from Absalom. Absalom's not the king of a foreign country. Absalom is his son. This is a song that was written by David where he's crying. So he is fleeing while he's king from his son. And so let's, let me read this to you again. Understanding these are not mortal enemies of sovereign nation. This is his own son turning against him and has run him out of town as king. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, oh Lord, are a shield around me. You're the glory, the one who holds my head high. And I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from his holy mountain. So the question begs, why would David have to write this Psalm? Why is he on the run from Absalom? It's because he made a mistake so big that he never thought he would come back from it. There's a reason why Absalom is after him. There's a reason why Absalom has overthrown David from the kingdom temporarily. David will be restored. There's a reason why this is happening. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it said, at a time when kings were supposed to be at war, David was at home and David was on the palace roof and he looked out and he saw a woman who was not his wife and he lusted after her and he sent for her as kings, worldly kings would often do because they were their subjects. And it didn't matter worldly kings, it didn't matter whose wife it was. So David, at a time he should have been out leading troops, is at home, and he's acting like a worldly king. He sends for this woman. Her name is Bathsheba. They sleep together, and he sends her away. And David thinks it's all done. But then Bathsheba sends to him by message, and she said, my husband, his name is Uriah. He serves in your army and he is off at war right now. But I have found myself to be pregnant, and it has to be yours. It can't be his. So David comes up with a scheme. 
he sends for the man Uriah, her husband, brings him back and tells him he's going to have a good two or three day weekend leave. And he says, come back, celebrate, rest, go be with your wife. And the reason why he does this is he wants him to sleep with his wife so that when the baby's born, Uriah will think that the child is his. Uriah is such a righteous man that when he comes back, he says, I cannot, I cannot enjoy pleasure while my brothers in arms are on the front line. So he refuses to go home. So David says, well, come to my table. Let's have a feast together to celebrate. And David gets him drunk and sends him home, now in an inebriated state, to be with his wife. But Uriah sleeps at the city gates and refuses to go home because his brothers in arms are at battle. And so David, realizing that his plan is not going to work, now becomes so desperate that he sends Uriah back, but he sends a note with him sealed. He says, give this to the commander. And the note that Uriah gives to the commander says, I want you to put Uriah on the front line. And when the battle increases, I want you to fall back so that Uriah and all of those on the front line are killed. To cover up his sin, he has a man and the other men that are with him on the line murdered. Can you imagine? Not only the act, you sent this man back to the front line and you made him carry his own death warrant for doing nothing but being righteous. And David thinks he's gotten away with it. And the Bible says that after Bathsheba mourned the death of her husband, David took her as his wife. And he thought, everything will be okay. But then we find that the prophet, Nathan, whom God uses to speak to David, goes to David and he tells David this story. He said, there once was a man and this man was, owned all the sheep around him. He was really, really rich, owned all the sheep. And he had a neighbor and his neighbor owned one sheep and he loved that sheep. That sheep was like a child to him. And the man who had all of this, the rich man who had all these sheep, took the man's sheep and he said, what should be done to this man? And David said, as surely as the Lord lives, that man ought to die. And in verse 7 of chapter 12, this is what Nathan says to David. Verse 7, he begins to speak to David after he tells him this story. He says, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And the Lord, the God of Israel says, and I want you to notice, how God says this. Notice all of the eyes where God is saying what he would have done for David if he would have simply asked. He said, I anointed you king of Israel and gave you the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. 
From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And then he goes on. Let me read verse 11. It's not on the screen. And the Lord says, because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you and I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. So God confronts him about this wicked thing that he has done. The greatest king that Israel has ever known with an absolute sordid story, a black mark on his entire record as king, and God confronts him. And what I want you to see is how great God's grace is to David. And for some of you in the room, and for some of you watching online, who think that that thing that's in the past, that thing that you have hidden, that thing you don't want to talk about, that sin that you committed, that you think that God will never get past and you're never going to get past, I want you to see how great God's grace really is for your life. So let me give you some quick things. Is So how do you receive grace? You see, this doesn't look like grace when the prophet comes to Samuel, I mean, to, to Nathan. And when Nathan comes to David, it doesn't feel like grace. It just feels like confrontation. When you hear a sermon or you hear a song or you read something and it convicts your heart or the Holy Spirit begins to convict and convince your heart, it doesn't feel like what you think is grace at that moment in time. It just feels bad, right? Do you know that grace Grace is willing to not worry about your feelings in the moment, but to reach out to you even in the midst of your corruption and sin, even though you have followed Jesus in the past and you've made a sin. Grace is willing to make you uncomfortable in order to bring you back to God. But many times it feels like confrontation. But after he is confronted with his sin, notice what happens. The first thing is this. You receive grace when you repent from the sin. When you repent from the sin. Look at what David says in verse 13, the very first part of verse 13. And David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now that's interesting because theologically, he's got it all right. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against the commander of the army by bringing him into this and causing him to be a part of murdering man. David sinned when he caused other men to be murdered as he pulled them up in order for them to cover his sin with their loss of life. David sinned against all of them, but he realizes that above all else, he sinned against the Lord. He sinned against the commandments of the Lord. He's broken the covenant with God. He's broken the heart of God when he lives by the world's standards, and he repents. We know he repents because it tells us here, but it also tells us in Psalm 51, and the Bible tells us that this psalm is a psalm that is written while David is contemplating 
the sin that he has committed with Bathsheba. This is what David says in Psalm 51. It's not going to be on the screen. I want you to listen. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of Scripture. This is David pouring his heart out to God. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. And you will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Give me back the joy, my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You don't want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit, but you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem then you'll be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit and with burnt offerings and with whole burnt offerings, then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. He's pouring out his heart. He realizes the depth and the depravity of his sin. And he said, it affects more than me. When he prays and he says, look with favor on Zion, he knows this is affecting not just me, and it's not just affecting my family. This is affecting all of the people I'm associated with. This is affecting all of the kingdom that I'm supposed to be ruling right now. They don't deserve this. Help me, Lord. Help them as well. You receive grace when you repent from your sin. The second thing is this. You receive grace when you accept God's forgiveness. After he says, I've sinned against the Lord, Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. The interesting part is, I think, I think, based on 25 years of full-time ministry, 16 years of being a senior pastor, I believe with all my heart, this is the place that many Christians get stuck right here. They've gone to God and they've asked him for forgiveness. And God has spoken to them and said, you're forgiven through his word, through a message, through whatever. He said, you're forgiven, but they get stuck there because they cannot forgive themselves. And the reason why they can't forgive themselves is they cannot comprehend a God who can reach beyond their sin and reach into the deepest part of our lives and begin to cleanse us and make us whole again. They cannot grasp hold of that. David gets it in Psalm 103. He says, the Lord, as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our sins from us and he cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness so that they'll never be remembered again. But can I tell you something? 
if you don't come to that place, you'll always live short of the calling on your life. And I'm telling you something, you ought to live holy, you ought to live righteous, and the reason you live holy and righteous is not because of your own ability, it's because of the power of the Holy Spirit living within you. But when you fail and when you make a mistake, you don't have to stay there because the blood of Jesus was not just enough to cover all the things in your past, it's enough to cover everything that happens in your life right now. And if you stay stuck back there because of your sin, you're not giving the power of cross, the power of the cross permission to do the thing God wants to do in your life, and that's to restore you. Some Christians never make it past this level, and they live below the calling. Can I just tell you something? God wants to deliver you not only from the sin, but from the shame and the guilt and the condemnation. That's why Paul, when he writes in chapter 7 of Romans, he says, why is it that I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do? And he says, oh, what a wretched man am I. But then he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 8, and he says, but there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can I just tell you something? When you hold your sin up and don't allow God to move in and cleanse it away, you believe, you won't say it out loud, but you are acting as if your sin is greater than the cross. But the sacrifice and the blood and the body of Christ is more than enough. You have to repent of the sin. You have to accept God's forgiveness. But then you have to accept the consequences, too, of your actions. What I mean is this. Spiritually, the slate may be wiped clean, but there may be some fallout that you have to face. There may be some fallout that you have to face in your family. If there's unfaithfulness that's happened in a marriage or in a relationship, I'm, God can cleanse. God can reconcile. But don't you hear me? That doesn't mean there's not going to be fallout. God can forgive the most awful, heinous crime that's ever committed. The blood of Christ is enough. But that doesn't mean that you might not have to pay a debt to society. God can wipe clean anything but there may be some fallout in your life. And there was in David's. As a matter of fact, there were two horrible things that happened. God said, the child that she's pregnant with is not gonna survive. And then he told him, someone is gonna rise up and rebel against you. And what you did in private will be done in public. Absalom his son, begins to rile up people against David. And he goes in and overthrows David. And David is on the run. And David, who has wives, as kings did, and concubine, which were considered, they, they were considered to be wives, but they weren't necessarily of royal birth. David leaves some of them to take care of the palace. Absalom goes in, and he conquers the palace, and he takes those remaining concubine wives onto the roof of that palace, and he, he pitches a tent, and in front of everyone in all of Jerusalem, he sleeps with David's wives. 
This is horrible. This is awful. And David, for a time, has to run for his life and fear for his life until Absalom is killed and David comes back into the kingdom as king. David accepts the consequences. But sometimes the consequences are going to be difficult. You can have God's forgiveness. You can accept all of it and be clean spiritually, but there may be fallout in your life. But God's grace is still sufficient. The fourth thing is this, is to remember God's grace. And what I mean by that is to remember how God's grace works. So what will grace do for you and what will grace do for me? Well, in the psalm that he writes, he tells us that God will accept me. Grace means that God will accept me. Verse three, he says, but you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You're my glory and the one who holds my head high. Literally, you're the lifter of my head. This, this seems so nice and, and poetic, but there's, there's a, there is a richness to this that we've got to comprehend. You see, when you offended the king, the king could have you killed at any moment in time. When you were summoned by the king, if you offended the king and had to come before the king, you came before the king and you bowed your head low. It was your repentance. It was your sorrowful act. It was your remorse. And the king would then extend the scepter and the king had a choice. He could punish you or he could restore you. And the way a king would restore you was a king would get up off of their throne and he would come down and he would lift the head up of the subject so that they would look him in the eye again. And at that moment in time, everybody, the person, the king, everyone around, they knew that that person had been restored at that moment. This is what David says. You're the lifter of my head. You're the one I come bowed low to. You're the one that I am repenting to. You're the one that I have sinned against. And I come at your mercy. You have every right to do away with me. You have every right to punish me. You have every right to banish me. You have every right to have me killed. But instead, you reach down and you're the lifter of my head to restore me to the place you've called me to be. Can I just tell you, some of you need to get a picture of that in your life, that God is the lifter of your head. You don't have to walk around in shame and condemnation anymore, but he lifts your head. And this is the thing. Nobody in the palace or the kingdom, if the king lifted your head, was ever, was ever allowed to talk about that again because it was done. David said, that's what you do to me. You accept me like that. That's what grace does. It reminds me that God accepts me. How do I know that God will accept me? Because he's the one that started the conversation with David. David didn't go to Nathan and say, I think I've done something wrong. God confronted David for one purpose, so that he could restore him. And when God convicts you of your sin, it's for one person, purpose, so that he can restore you to the place that he's called you to be and that Jesus died for you to live. What does grace look like for me? It means that God will hear me. Verse four says, I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. David is a long way away from the mountain of Jerusalem. 
He's a long way from Mount Zion. He has run. He is on the run. He's a long way. But he says, when I cried out from there, you still heard me from here. I love this picture. The same place where David had been expelled from, God was still ruling. As David was removed from his throne temporarily, God was still on his throne listening and hearing. Can I just tell you, there's no place you can go where God won't hear you. There's not a place that you can go that God can't see you and reach you and hear you. Grace remembers that God accepts me and God hears me. Grace also remembers that God will sustain me. Verses five and six, he says, I lay down and slept, and yet I woke up in safety. For the Lord was watching over me, and I'm not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. I love this because David's more afraid of what God can do than he is his mortal enemies. He says, as long as I'm on your side, I know you'll sustain me. Let me give you the final one. Grace remembers that only God can deliver me. Only God can deliver me. Verses seven and eight, he says, arise, O Lord, and rescue me, my God. I love that. Confidence is just welling up. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. Notice this odd phrase. May you bless your people. David realizes that the grace that's going to be extended to him is not just for him. It's for the people of the Lord. He's their leader. And God didn't call them to live in turmoil. God didn't call them to live in, under a rebellious leader. God called them to live under David, and God had an orderly plan of succession that was going to follow David as well. And this is, this is something that, I, as I was studying, it just, I've never really seen this before, but it just jumped off the page. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 9, it's not on the, you write it down if you want to, you can go look at it. Um, David is, at the end of his life, he's telling his son, his son that will be born to Bathsheba later, a son that they named Solomon. He tells his son that he's supposed to build, that his son is supposed to build the temple for the Lord. And here's what he says in verse nine. It says, David is telling his son, he said, long ago, this is what God spoke to me. The words God spoke to me were, you will have a son who will be a man of peace and I will give him peace with his enemies and all the surrounding lands and his name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. Solomon is a derivative of the word shalom. Solomon means peace. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, it tells us that David and Bathsheba have a son and they name him Solomon. But then it also says the prophet Nathan goes to them and says, the Lord is pleased with this one. And you are to call him Jedidiah. It's the only time in scripture that name is used. Now, they don't ever call him by that name. 
because that's not his proper name. God has already prophesied before Solomon was ever born to David. He said, you're going to have a son, and you're going to name him Solomon. So as God says he's going to be called, what it means is, is that means I am proclaiming over him right now this name, Jedidiah. And that name means beloved of the Lord. Your wickedness and your shame and your sin has been covered. And the product of this marriage now that has been sanctified by the Lord, been sanctified by the only the work that God can do, that product is now you've got a child named Solomon. He's going to follow you. He's going to be king of this land. And I'm going to refer to this child as beloved. Now, here's what I want you to get a hold of. For the person in this room watching online who thinks that your past prevents God from using you, implementing your gifts, or blessing you, before Solomon is ever born, God prophesies his blessings upon a child that begins with parents in an illicit relationship. I want you to think about that for a second. That God's sovereignty can look down through time, can know the things that we're going to do, can know the repentant heart that we're going to have, and choose to bless the product of our future as much as he's done in our past. Now, that ought to be liberating for some folks in here. That your past that you keep thinks holding, you think is holding you back. God has already seen it and known your repentance and ready to bless you moving forward. And it's not just going to be a blessing to you, it's going to be a blessing to people around you. Because it wasn't just Solomon who was going to be named peace. God was proclaiming peace over the entire nation of Israel. Can I just tell you something? If you'll keep your heart tender, if you'll listen to the Lord, if you'll repent when he convicts you, if you'll turn back when he calls to you, if you won't get angry when he confronts you, but you'll lean in to the restorative work of Christ in your life, God's grace is greater than you can ever imagine. And when you leave this place, I want you to walk out of here in freedom and power, and authority under the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for you right now. Father, in the name of Jesus right now, thank you for your word. Thank you. God, you could have made your scripture, your word, you, you could have made it so that we didn't know these stories. You could have withheld those things from us. But you chose to put the brutally awful, ugly stuff that men and women are capable of. And you do it so that you can show your power and your authority and your grace. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for the folks that are in this room that are struggling with things that they've done in the past May they see the cross and the empty tomb as greater than any sin they've ever committed. 
Lord, I pray that as the enemy tries to speak words of condemnation, let the Spirit of God speak conviction and convincing to them to bring it to the Lord with a repentant heart and allow the blood of Christ to wash away that sin. I pray that there will be some folks that accept the forgiveness that you offer and walk out of here with joy for the first time in days or months or years, joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. I also pray for those that maybe they're dealing right now with the fallout of the decisions and the sin that has happened in their life. God, as you did with David, sustain them during this. If it's possible, Lord, let restitution be made. If it's possible, let reconciliation be made, Lord. If it's possible, oh God, I pray that they'll be able to make things right, humanly speaking. But more than anything, may they know that they know that they know that they're right with you spiritually tonight. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus that as you did with the child of David and Bathsheba, you named him Solomon and you called him Jedediah. May we walk out of here with those words etched on our hearts, peace and beloved of the Lord because of what you've done through Jesus. And we'll be careful to give you the praise for it in the name that is above every other name, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. For some of you tonight, I believe you're going to walk out of here in some freedom, and I just believe God is going to use you greatly. And if you believe your, your future is greater than your past, can you just give the Lord praise tonight? Give him praise for his future that he has for you. Amen. Amen. I hope you'll join us this Sunday. It's Pentecost Sunday. Um, it's the day that, the, that we celebrate the Holy Spirit was poured out in the upper room, the birth of the church. And I want to talk to you this Sunday, taking um, Pentecost um, before Christ rose from the dead and then after Christ rose from the death, two, two, um, two examples of that. And I want you to know how to overcome a spiritually dry season in your life and let the washing of the water of the word through the power of the Holy Spirit fill you once and fresh again. Amen? So I hope you'll be here this Sunday. If you'll stand with me, I'd just love to bless you before you go today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response in Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you, folks. Love you. Have a great remainder of the week.